Welcome, everybody. It's good to see you all here on a Saturday. Here for the Living the Practice workshop on the skillful, and I had to look at the title, like, what did we call it? It's been so long since I've actually looked at it myself. The Skillful and Unskillful Use of Identities, How the Buddhist Teachings on Conceit and Views Support Skillful Engagement and Freedom in Our Lives Today. Yeah. So Mark and Wen and I are committed to offering these Living the Practice workshops quarterly, and we invite other teachers like Gabe Keller Flores here today to participate with us. It's a, really our intention to move from the theoretical to the pragmatic, to see how the teachings and our practice really uh, is alive and applicable in our lives as they are, not in some imagined sense, but actually in the way we walk and talk and move about in our lives and in community with each other. So we'll get started um, just with a meditation so you can get into a comfortable position. Accepting whatever posture we've chosen. Just allowing the energy to settle. The body to be what it is. Connecting with something obvious about the posture of the body. Just to support the settling of the mind. Simply be the weight of the body. Temperature. Something more subtle like breath, flow of breath in and out of the body.
There's no need to resist or claim anything. Just allow. And as the mind settles, we can see how it feels natural to notice more subtle experience. The connection with the body becomes more subtle. You might even start to notice thought coming and going. You might also notice how easy it is to take experience personally. Perhaps a memory that feels like my life. an unpleasant sensation in the knee or back. This is my body. And so many of these small moments rising and falling away again and again. Emotions associated with thoughts. feels so personally connected to these experiences.
And remembering that we don't have to reject anything. Just being a good observer. Watching these moments take birth, die, take birth again, and die. with a lot of love in our hearts, realizing this is what it's like to be human. Is it possible just to be here with it all?
So these living the practice workshops um, are really a way for us to share our wisdom with each other and learn together. So Mark and Wen and Gabe and I will be sharing our reflections about how we've internalized the teachings on conceit and identity and made sense of them in our lives. But most of the time we'll be in conversation with each other. So in small groups and large groups, 
just to talk and think through how we've, what we understand. Yeah. And in that way, we'll get to benefit from lots of teachers in the space. So we thought we would just do a round of introductions and starting with, Hillis, do you want to come, come into the room? Can see you. Cool. Start by introducing ourselves and then give all of you a chance to introduce yourselves, maybe in uh, pairs, and then share out some of what you're reflecting on. So it might be good just to think about our identities, all of our identities in our lives, how we um, experience identity and express that. And maybe just speak to one to three of those that come to mind most easily and share that with a partner. So we'll model that for you now. I'm Shelly, and I use they, them pronouns. And in your dyads, it would be good to name what pronouns you use also, not because it's so, we won't be doing much uh, crosstalk in here right now, but when we break up into small groups, both over the break and over lunch, that will be, become relevant to know how uh, we identify in terms of gender. So Shelley, they, them pronouns, uh, identify as a non-binary woman, which I could unpack that for a long time. <laughs> Queer, teacher, social worker, some of the things that I feel into on a regular basis. Yeah, and they become relevant again and again in my life. I'm a sense of finding a sense of belonging and also seeing that it's not the end of the road. The sense of belonging is useful in my life and it's also um, something that I get to deconstruct so I'll just pass it along and see if maybe I'll let, do you want to go next? I'll go yeah. <laughs> uh, my name's Wynn. Uh, I use she, her pronouns. And um, yeah, I'll just name a few. Um, I'm a female person. I'm a academic. I'm a married person spiritual seeker. Mm. I'm from the East Coast. <laughs> Good morning. My name is Gabe. Yeah, doesn't seem to be making any noise. Thanks, Mark. My name is Gabe. I use he, him pronouns. Uh, I identify as a cisgender, straight man. I identify as a person of color. I identify as a young person. I identify as a Buddhist. I identify as a suffering human being. Yeah, I think those are the main ones. 
You can guess my identity. Someone, I'm identified with being someone who's averse to having identities. <laughs> Could rather remain unconscious of all my identities. <laughs> so they get to happen under the surface, erupting here and there without me being conscious of them and the destruction that I leave in my wake. <laughs> Okay, so maybe now just turn to someone near you and just reflect on identity in any way you want to. There's no right or wrong. Just go with whatever comes up, and I'll ring the bell in a few minutes, and then we'll have a few minutes to share out. So this is just a real just basic starting place for us. So let's just hear from others. We have about 10 minutes to hear anything that felt relevant to speak to in your group. We'll pass the mic and just hold it close to your face so we can hear each other. One of my identities is being a proud Minnesotan and Twin Cityan. And so when I heard he was from New Hampshire, I was like, oh, yeah, I'll help you get to know this area. It's really great, you know. So <laughs> I'm Sean Grzeski, he, him, uh, Irish, Polish. <laughs> hey, folks. Uh, my name is Misty, use they, them pronouns. Uh, something that came up in my conversation with John which is why I enjoy talking with people in different age brackets is the first thing he said was, a lot of my identities have changed. Mm. Mm. That is something that happens. That's all. Thank you. We'll go to Robert and then... Uh, I also uh, am learning about identities. I'm probably an elder in the community, and um, I hadn't understood non-binary, and Jen has helped me a great deal to understand that a little bit more. And I have, my identities go back to many, many years ago, and um, I find that they're evolving. We'll go to Kate and then to Lewis. Hi, my name's Kate. Uh, one thing that I noticed that I found insightful personally for, for my own growth is that uh, one of my identities is based off of how other people view me and maybe not as initially driven from myself. Um, and that's something I'm interested in exploring right now. Good morning. My name is Louis Salamayu. I've been a member of this community for quite a while. I'm one of the teachers. And uh, I sat back there because I really wanted to. <laughs> um, Sorry, Louis. And, uh, and I realized I feel very uncomfortable. Uh, I decided just last night that I was going to come uh, to the workshop because... The topic is one I think about a lot, work on a lot, and it keeps unfolding and evolving. Um, I don't even want to claim, gee, I think what I can claim is that I'm an introvert with a very public life. Thank you. Anybody else? Hi, I'm Mike. Um, 
I actually don't have an observation. I have a question uh, because I didn't understand two of the terms that were used. The one term I didn't understand and uh, was non-binary. And the other term I didn't understand, which I asked the gentleman next to me, and he didn't either, is cisgender. I'm wondering if someone in the room has a response to non-binary. If not, I can miss you. Most of the people in this room probably identify as male or female. These are pronouns that people are familiar with. There is a, Those aren't the only options. Non-binary is an umbrella term to fit people who do not fit into the category of solely male or solely female. Can I answer cisgender, too, while Let's I'm... Let's see if someone else has a response for cisgender. And if not... What, Gabe? Oh, Laura. Cisgender is if you're born a male and you associate with being a male, or is if you're born a female and then you associate also with being a female? Correct. Or you could say... Uh, assigned male at birth and you identify as being a male sure. yeah sex and gender match is what i meant yeah. what i just said yeah. oh what Laura said um around sex and gender matching so the sex you are assigned at birth matches the gender you identify with that's what cisgender means as opposed to transgender where the gender you identify with doesn't match the sex you are assigned at birth that's my understanding. We have time for maybe one or two more comments. Anybody else? Um, I'm Son. Can you hear me? So, huh? Closer. Is that better? Um, one of the um, there's so many identities that come up and I'm realizing they're coming from like what you said from outside and also you know then I take them in and internalize them some of them I feel like they're coming from inside so one of them is just my name Deborah and another one is white American woman those are all have a lot of layers of cultural identity and you know conditioning I think that go with those and that that was you know those that's kind of what i'm interested in talking about is how we how we go in and out of those identities and uh, relate to ourselves and other people around us through those identities so. interestingly enough when i first began speaking with jen i identified myself not as male but as person of color because i think What's this last discussion is how do I perceive other people to perceive me? Great, thank you so much. It always it already feels like the space is more alive with all of us here. So thank you. And I'll pass it on to Mark. It's been really interesting looking at uh my, the mind's fascination with aging and uh, 
just partly like what Robert and others were saying, the effect of how what people project onto me being in, you know, getting closer maybe, or maybe actually being an older person. And, uh, and then like trying it on as an identity. And I notice like I have more confidence and uh, comfort fumbling around and kind of not being as nimble with words or memory or bodily stuff. And it's sort of like playing with that identity. Oh, this is, I guess this is okay because I'm in that category of being an older person and I get to be that sort of, at least in moments, that fumbly, you know, oh, isn't he sweet? (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) So uh, this next part, um, for 40 minutes or so, I want to talk a little bit about the teachings from the Buddha's, um, you know, as much as we can tell this, evidently this wise person who had come to understand a lot about the mind. In a way, deep enough, understanding his mind deep enough that um, there was some, some of these universal aspects that when we look in a more subtle, more deep way, we see the same movement, same aspects of the mind, how the mind gets tight, how the mind congeals and holds, looking for safety where maybe there isn't ultimately any safety. Right? And so identity is one of these places, fixed views is another way we talk about it in the tradition, how the mind uses stories, views, identity, concepts of self, concepts of me and you, why, I mean, one of the things we can tell immediately from the the way Shelley opened the workshop is there's no way as human beings in community, there's no way for us to function without identity, without story of being from Minnesota or being a white person or being, you know, whatever gender, however we understand our gender our sexual orientation, right? These, these identities, these stories, these views, these ideas, they have impact, not just personally in my heart, my identities are meaningful to me, but as several people suggested, it's meaningful like the super in, like the meaning identities, what's being projected onto me, what I'm projecting onto you, looking around the room, can you look at somebody without projecting identity or meaning or story onto them? I don't think so. (laughs) I mean, I think we can train ourselves when we're looking at a person to just be on the level of visual form, shape, color, right? But the, the part of the mind, the activity of mind we call perception, it's still happening. You know, when I look at Ellen over there, one of our leaders, you know, I can get to the point where I'm seeing the pinkness and the redness of the sweater and the shape, but I can't stop my mind from doing that work of perceiving, oh, that's Ellen. She's this, she's that, she's not this, she's not that. She fits in this category, not that cat. One of the you know, ancient ones in the community, you know, those sort of things, they just are there. Maybe sometimes they're really forefront of the mind's attention, 
maybe sometimes in the background. It's sort of like, uh, you know, around race and around class and around gender. We like sometimes to imagine we're beyond that, my mind is beyond that, but it isn't. All that cultural programming and maybe even some genetic programming is going to be activated. So part of what we're doing is we're just learning to acknowledge what gets activated, the stories that we're swimming with, living with, interacting with, projecting, receiving from each other, from our interactions. This is the soup we live in. And the interesting question is, does it have to be a problem? Having stories, having views, having identities. Clearly, you know, and as we go on through the day, we'll be hearing from each other. Clearly, our identities have caused, our, my own identities has, have been limiting and constricting and oppressive, the identities I carry, like not being good enough. Anybody have that identity, right? It can be quite oppressive having that identity wherever that might show up in life. Or surprisingly, it's oppressive to have the identity, I'm, being, I'm better than you, I know more than you, I'm right. That's an oppressive identity too, right? It's so much work to keep imagining that everybody else is wrong or less than, right? And to massage the data to fit that view, that identity. So it's like we can't live with and we can't live without identity. That's our predicament. And it really goes right to the heart of what the Buddha had to offer. I mean, there's been a lot of wisdom, you know, through the ages. And then people, you know, some people are able to get out of the box and add a whole new, let's say, layer, a whole new perspective of wisdom that then has some resonance. And now, some 2,600 years later, what is the particular resonance from the Buddhist teachings around view, around identity? Like, what was this person able to kind of bring forth about the nature of how our mind operates? in the world that is of value for us. And I think it's really important to just name, you know, as that whatever the Buddha came to understand and then articulated and then got passed on, we have to understand that that passage through time, it wasn't perfect, right? So the Buddhist teachings got institutionalized in male-dominated institutions. That's just how it is. And so... Part of our work as people who are not interested in who's right or wrong, whose God is bigger than you know, the other gods or whose idea is better than the other ideas, but actually interested in a more pragmatic way of addressing our suffering and the end of suffering, then we have to listen to these imperfect things that have been passed down, sort of streams of human wisdom, that can only get passed down to culture and institutions imperfectly. But that doesn't mean that it's a bunch of trash. It just means we have to do our work of hearing it, listening, understanding that it's limited because it got passed down by human beings with their fixed views and their cultural conditioning and their ways of 
you know, the limitations of that. And then we have to sort of hear it and then work with it until it becomes real and useful, functional, pragmatic, illuminates our own experience in a way that we find really skillful. We can function more nimbly, more creatively, more kindly in our worlds, in our relationships, right? That's how we know. So I want to say that about some of these sort of traditional teachings that come from the Buddha is like, don't blame the Buddha for them being limited. It was the only way to go from point A to point B, right? It would be one thing if we had somebody with really deep, deep wisdom here in front of us, you know, the the transmission would be different. But we're doing this transmission through human institution, human culture. And so we have to step up and not immediately reject or immediately say it's right. But we have to work with it. Like, how does it illuminate my own experience? How, what's useful? What might I leave on the shelf for later, perhaps? Who knows? What's immediately useful? What doesn't pass the smell test? And we, we leave it behind. The other point I wanted to make right at the beginning, too, is um, because it can... We hear it a lot, you know, the four of us up front, but probably you as well. In Buddhist circles, you know, we hear a lot about this as if there's a difference between our own well-being, taking care of our own suffering, and showing up because we care and taking care of the suffering in the world. And this is like a really good place to look at identity. Because some of us, may be identified with taking care of my own suffering, and in other moments in our lives, we might be identified with taking care of the world's suffering or other people's suffering, feeling responsible, wanting to do our part. And what I would just encourage us, all of us to have some humility that there's actually a difference. Why, does there, why are we at times so sure there's a difference between, no, I'm doing my own work, and that, oh, that's not the world's work, taking care of the world. Or I'm doing the, you know, I'm an activist, I'm taking care of the suffering in the world, but I'm neglecting my own well-being. And so just inviting us to keep open to the possibility that addressing my own well-being and addressing the well-being of the world, that maybe they can go hand in hand. And that, I think, would be really useful as we do this work around identity today, is not to presume that as I'm sort of unpacking this in my own experience, that I might also be learning how to show up in this world where there's so much injustice and suffering in a wiser way, that they can work hand in hand together. And then in the, in the spirit of these teachings from the Buddha being pragmatic, you know, one thing we can just open to is you know, just as a personal guideline in doing this work around identity or fixed view, being attached to a story, being attached to some idea of self, whether it's you as a self or me as a self, is, and this really speaks to the encouragement we get a lot here at the center of this invitation to be embodied, to kind of show up, there's a body here, because here in the, heart of the moment, this body, heart, mind, right? If it hurts, 
this immediate experience, if it hurts, there's probably attachment. Right? There's probably some holding, some fixing, some entrenchment, right? Because that fixation that I that holding to identity, not the identity, but how the mind is relating to the identity. Not the view, but how the mind is relating to view. There's, if there's a crunch, a squeeze in the heart, then that's a sign, like a, a loving sign. Hey, honey, wake up. What's going on? Why does my heart, why is there heaviness? Why is there tightness? Why does this moment feel so heavy? Because, you know, our inst- maybe instinctual, but our habit is often somebody is doing something that's making my heart hurt, that's making my heart heavy, that's making me tight. You're making me tight. But the tightness is here, the the weight is here, the contraction's here. And do we really want to disempower ourselves by saying, the way the world is means I have to suffer? Or the way this person is treating me means I have to suffer. Now, I'm not saying there isn't a correlation between how the world treats me, how the world sees me, and how I feel. Clearly, there's a relationship. The question is a pragmatic question. What's a skillful, when we are hurting, when there is that psychic weight, emotional weight, heaviness, suffering, confusion disorientation, oppression. It's a pragmatic question. What can I do that's helpful? What can I do that's helpful? If we could snap our fingers and make the external conditions different, that would be great. And to the degree we can participate in what's happening in the what we call the wider world, external world, yeah, we should, out of compassion, participate skillfully but my heart right now is hurting, how can I respond? And that's really one of the things we're going to be unpacking is this direct personal responsibility we have for what is my mind doing right now around identity? How is it relating to identity? What is it doing with the story of identity? And is it helping? Is it illuminating the present moment so I can be more skillful? Or is it distorting the present moment that causes me to be less skillful, causing myself another suffering? So it's really a pragmatic question. That's why we can't tell somebody, you know, you're not doing identity right. You know, you're holding, I mean, maybe with a good friend, when we're really invited, we might mirror something back that we're sensing for them. But generally speaking, we have to discover for ourselves, what is my mind doing with identity right now? And is it helpful in a very direct, pragmatic sense? Is it helping me be a more skillful human being, given what I have to navigate right now? How might I use identity? How might I use view more skillfully in this moment? You see how that takes us out of this uh, sort of wider realm of thinking about what identities are okay to use, what identities are not okay to use, where we're sort of trying to define it for everybody. 
But that doesn't mean we're not taking care of everybody by doing this personal work. This is how we take care of everybody. We do this personal work around our identities related to gender, related to class, related to race, related to you know, how smart we think we are, whether we tend, because of habit, to think of ourselves as being less smart or tend, because of habit, to think of ourselves as being more smart or whatever those sort of spectrums of difference that we all have to navigate to sort of illuminate. And a lot of times, like I sort of jokingly, but I, I really meant what I said, we have, I have at least, a deep habit to not want to illuminate all this stuff around identity. Because one of my initial responses is, it's really complex. And it really helps me have that sort of superficial relaxation of being oblivious. You know, sort of just, and you can do that when you're living a relatively privileged life. You know, that option is available for me to sort of, you know, kind of be on cultural cruise control where I don't want to be, I want to be oblivious. I don't really want to feel into, illuminate how identity works, how view works, because it gets really complex. And this is generally true with the path of awakening mindfulness practice. Initially, you might get some calm, you know, your first class, whatever, first half a year doing the practice, get a little taste of more tranquility in your life. But if you're really dedicated, if you really stick with it, then you're going to start seeing a lot more than what you've ever wanted to see. And you're going to not just see it in your own heart and mind, but you're going to start seeing it in everybody else. You're going to become a sensitive human being. And it's really messy. It's really complex. And then it will trigger wanting to feel safe because we're feeling more exposed. Then that more primal instinct to feel safe will arise and so we'll cling to views. So you see this a lot in Buddhist settings where people start to cling to the view, to the identity of being sensitive, being a Buddhist, being right, being someone who doesn't cling, being somebody, the identity of being somebody who doesn't get attached. And boy, is that stinky, right? It's like, try being around somebody who's identified with not being attached. Because then what are they dependent on? Like I'm this is me, and I'm hopefully less now than before, but then we're really identified with not seeing our attachments. Like if I have the identity of being a Buddhist who's not attached, then I have to work very hard unconsciously to not be aware of my attachments because it doesn't fit my view, my identity of being somebody who thinks identities, fixed identities, are bad. And then that's a trap, obviously. And it just, it really interrupts the awakening or the learning process. So basically seeing what we don't want to see. And it's not just, you know, I'm guessing, it's not just white, male, privileged people who have to see what we don't want to see. I think this is the general human adventure of seeing what we don't want to see. But, it, but it's specific you know, how we all unpack, how this unwinding process happens, it's very personal. 
But the underlying principles are pretty much the same, it seems. And that's kind of what we could talk about today by sharing our own Dharma adventure, spiritual adventures of waking up. We'll see, we'll confirm maybe that they're the underlying principles of feeling in, seeing what we don't want to see around identity, learning how to navigate. Because it's very easy. This is sort of the shadow in spiritual practice. When we see the suffering involved with identity, we want to take this spiritual shortcut, this bypass. Okay, no more identities. I don't see race. I don't see class. I don't see gender. Don't see anything. You know, and what am I? I'm identified with a, an idea. We're all one. You see this a lot in spiritual circles. We're all one. It's just one, interdependent, whole. And it's a, it can be a really beautiful idea. People, artists, spiritual folks, they can talk a, a really good talk, tell a really good story, inspiring stories about this. And it does those experiences of unity, of boundarylessness, they do arise in moments. But that's not, also, that's not only what arises. We also have moments where it feels like we're really different, really strong division, really like can't connect with another person. Right? That's also true and real. Is there space in our practice for both of those so-called extremes, both the sort of complexity of our human relationships around power, around you know, all these differences that we inhabit. Can we say yes to that, not need to be afraid of that, not need to think of that as not being spiritual, and still in moments have experiences of wholeness and unity and the release so that we're seeing that these are real, but not the whole truth. Identities are real, but not the whole truth. Experiences of peace and unity and release are real, but not the whole truth. They actually need each other. It's like touching into moments of peace and release and non-identification really trains a heart to be unafraid in the complexity of identities, right? We really can trust that. Otherwise, this is completely unworkable. And we do what I was sort of saying is typical for the way I'm conditioned, which is to want to pretend that I'm done my work or something like that, you know, that I don't have to deal with that because I know I know, I've learned on this sort of superficial level, attachment, bad. Right? So I'm identified not with the experience of non-attachment, but with the idea of non-attachment, or whatever word you know, sort of fits, being good. <laughs> I'm a good person. I'm not a bad person. You know? I like people. I care about people. So we can be identified with that. But that's not the same as actually caring, because caring about people means... We're not afraid to show up in the complexity and in the division and in the woundedness that we all express in different ways and different amounts because of our cultural location and how that's all sort of been for us, each of us. 
There's an activist poet, maybe some of you know Muriel Rukeyser, from lived in from 1913 to 1980, and uh, one of the early feminists and social justice folks, and about wrote poems uh, in part about how uh, you know the sort of labor movement and how some of their early labor scenes were so dangerous. But one of the famous lines from Muriel is, the universe is made up of stories, not atoms. And it's true, like, we tend to be identified with materialist view. So identified, we don't think of it as a view. Like, we're living in this sort of whatever our high school science picture that was painted, you know, like, there are a bunch of, everything gets broken down to atoms. It's just, but actually, our world is what we're experiencing right now. And when we really honor our subjective experience right now, it's one story after another. And sometimes when we're in relationship with other people, we're co-creating, co-telling those stories. And then when we're by ourselves, you know, we're repeating stories, right? I mean, this is sort of an awakening moment when we realize the reality of that inner dialogue or inner narration. So maybe some of you haven't acknowledged truthfully that is our predominant experience as human beings is hearing ourselves talk to ourselves to use sort of normal language. That's mostly our experience as a human being. And even when we're interacting with each other, we're mostly telling ourselves a story about what's happening as I'm having you know, lunch with my partner or you know, hanging out with Shelley or whatever, we're still mostly in our stories. And those stories are organized around identity, meaning our stories, the relevant aspect of our stories is what is it saying about me? And what is it saying about, what is my story saying about me, implying about me? And what is my story implying about you? collectively or individually, right? Isn't that actually why our stories are so captivating is they have something to say about me and you. And really, to be frank, what my stories say about you are really about me too, right? Because it's just that contrast. You're better than me. I'm better than you. You have a sweater that I like. You know, what's important isn't your sweater, but that I like it or something like that. Self is involved. Self is behind that fixed view of self, is behind most of that narration. And this is kind of points to what the Buddha noticed when he studied his own mind, that these stories, this inner dialogue, or what we could just generally call mental activity, it has sort of um, a purpose that can be uncovered, and it's got entangled with survival. The inner story has gotten entangled with this very impersonal force of survival, of the replication of the genetic code. Right? So, this, so there's a fear. There's something about how 
that inner dialogue identity gets can get entangled with a sense of wanting safety for a perceived sense of self, as if there's a somebody, something, that's dependent on having an identity. Think about when we were teenagers. I mean, at different times for different folks. But, you know, there was a time between being a child and being an adult where we were, most of us, scrambling to figure out who we are. Like coming up with a handful of palatable stories that when we repeat them and when our friends repeat them back to us, feel like we belong, that we're safe, that at least I know who I am. Right? And some of those stories, you know, from some perspective, we might consider like that wasn't a very healthy story, but at least it worked well enough, that story about me. You know, like I'm fundamentally broken. But at least I know who I am. I may, you know, be fundamentally broken, but at least I know who I am. So then when doubt arises, like, who are you? You say, well, I'm fundamentally broken. Just like we could say, I'm a Buddhist. Wynn and I were at a retreat with Ajahn Sumedho, one of our important teachers, and he uh, would say, and just laugh in this really wonderful way, uh, I'm an unenlightened, suffering human being practicing to be enlightened. Right? That's an identity. Probably an identity a lot of us can relate to right now. Like, I'm an unenlightened human being. Anybody want to claim to being perfect? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Elizabeth. <laughs> yeah. But, that, but the fixedness around that identity, I'm an unenlightened being who came to this damn workshop in order to become enlightened so I could be free, or whatever, who gets up every morning to sit, in order to be free, or who does this spiritual push-up or that spiritual push-up or eats greens or, you know, whatever that sort of work to be good in order to become somebody, that's all identity. Now, rejecting it, I'm somebody who doesn't have to do that work, that's just the same kind of fixation, isn't it? I'm the rebel who doesn't do the thing I'm supposed to do. You know, so I eat butter instead of olive oil. Or I eat, when and I have been having our cholesterol checked recently, so we're kind of into the Mediterranean diet these days. <laughs> it's like, okay, so what tastes like butter but isn't butter and good for you? <laughs> so this... Uh, we can't get away with that. This is what was brilliant about the Buddhist teachings. Is he not only pointed out the sort of normal identity, but he also saw that rejecting identities is just another identity. So the way forward, and this is what I was saying a few minutes ago about embracing the complexity of our world, of our lives, of our stories, of our identities of our roles that we play, of our cultural locations. Right? We have to embrace that. We have to like get comfortable because there's no way out of our karmic, like in Buddhist language, our karmic situation. We are inhabiting 
this location that we're inhabiting. And not liking, not wanting to inhabit it, it's totally understandable at times, but identifying with the one who doesn't like it doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help you, and it doesn't help the wider world. What seems to help is to relax into the truth of the moment, the embodied truth of the moment, and not presume that the uncomfortable feelings that we have when we do relax, that those are unsafe. The instinct will be, I don't want to feel this discomfort. But the the understanding the Buddha uncovered was running from that discomfort is what causes suffering. The cause of suffering is not wanting to embrace the complexity of this world of identity, just to kind of make it specific to this workshop. So one of the things we're here to do, and I'll stop talking in just a moment, take a few questions before we move on to the next phase, but um, is really learning together about like how are we going to learn to be comfortable in this world of identity so that we can pragmatically figure out each of us in our specific dance how not to contribute to our own and others' suffering. Because this is one of the reasons we want to reject identity is we see people using, sometimes that, that person's ourself, we see people using identity in ways that cause conflict. But that doesn't mean identity can be rejected. Right? And this is like that throwing the baby out with the bathwater kind of thing. So the, the, the more pragmatic, useful question, I think, is what would be a good way, how might identity be helpful right now? What identity used in what way, what identities used in what ways might actually help me and you and everybody else get along with less suffering? How can we use identity skillfully? Because I can really imagine, and that's where we're going in a few minutes, it's like we thought we'd start out today really digging in like how it's used skillfully instead of how it's used unskillfully to really see that. There's a great line from one of Ajahn Thanissaro's teachers, a Thai forest meditation teacher, Buddhist monk, that uh, the line is something like, mountains are only heavy if you try to lift them. (laughs) Identities are only a problem if we mistakenly think that they're me or mine. As opposed to like when we're engaging a community or another person, when we're doing that dance of relating, right? we relate through stories. And we're co-authoring them. I mean, ideally, it's not very satisfying to be in relationship when the other person isn't allowing you to co-author, isn't interested in that sort of telling a story together. They just want us to listen. I mean, we can do that for a while, of course. Let someone vent or whatever. But really what we're doing, even how we listen, is co-authoring the story listening with kindness, listening with deep understanding, really changes how they're telling their story as opposed to not really being there or blocking their story with our story. They don't know what they're talking about. That's my story. 
you know, and I'm identified with that, like being the one who knows that they don't know what they're talking about. But they're a child, and so I'm going to humor them or something like that. Maybe I'll leave it here. We have a few minutes before we move on to the next um, kind of open discussion, but just some responses to what I've said. Questions, of course, also appropriate. Anything come to mind? Always good to say your name. And we are recording today, just so you know. And uh, if that's a problem, we can shut that off if you want to share without it being recorded. But any response or any questions about what I've said? Yeah, please. Okay, let's see. I'm going to try to put this in words as best I can. Um, Well, I have more than one question, but I'll stick with one for now. Um, so I'm I'm trying to um, understand what you mean. Well, first, first by identity itself, because it seems like um, you're saying um, that there's identity that we are attached to and identity that we're not attached to. So I'm trying to understand what that would even mean, identity that we're not attached to. Um, So, yeah, I guess that's one question. Um, The other one would be, well, what do you mean by um, use identity? The question was... What was it? How can we, how can we use identity more skillfully? So I, I'm wondering what also would that mean to use identity? Yeah. Yeah. No. Really good questions. And I think of it almost like putting on a lens, like just to use this example, even though it may not be that relevant. But you know, the fact that I'm sitting here, right? So th- that. I can use that identity, I'm in this role of being a teacher, and then that might illuminate, help me understand like what's happening between us right now, or age difference, right? the identity around age difference, or whatever, any other number of ways. Or you might have asked the question in a provocative way that triggered some of my defensiveness and sense of not being good enough, and then I can use that lens, oh, this is that identity of not feeling good enough. And because I've illuminated it, it really can affect, help me respond in a way that doesn't you know, make things more confusing. Right? So using it when we're not attached to identity, then we can use the identity of, around gender, around class, around age, around status or power or any way that we might have identity to help us see more clearly what we might not otherwise see. So what's not being seen? Because the whole, the basic premise from the Buddhist teachings is skillfulness depends on being intimate, being embodied, being, being open to what's actually moving. We can't really be skillful if we're not connected. So we use, use the lens of identity 
to see what we might not otherwise be seeing so that then our response in the moment is really coming out of being more connected instead of less connected. Does that kind of get at what you were asking? So are you saying, let me see if I can paraphrase. Are you saying that um, we we already are using that lens of identity, right? So... um, But are we using it in the service of being intimate, or are we using it in the service of protecting the sense of an egoic me that is afraid, fundamentally afraid, fundamentally wanting solid ground? Right. Yeah, that that answers my question. Yeah, and it's really about this path. Is like, I'm I'm on a path. I I can't always manifest it with integrity, but I'm on this path to embrace complexity and exposure because the other way hasn't worked for me. Right. So I'm I'm training my heart not to orient around a false sense of safety by clinging to an identity, but rather I'm using identities to move more into this place of complexity and insecurity, but strangely more stable there. Yeah. So let me see if I can just get this a little bit more clear, um, not to take up too much time, but um, as I understand it, it's it's sort of like... um, the um, well, I guess the, the easiest way for me to, to think about that is just that it's the I, the identity is already there whether we like it or not. So um, so we have to use what we have, and the only way to see clearly is to to use what we have, which is identity. Yeah. Is that? And not to assume that the identity that's active and in the forefront is the most useful identity in this moment. So to ask, well, what identity is in the forefront, Mm. is active, is that a helpful lens right now? Or by bringing this other identity into the moment, that will go to the periphery, and then maybe we'll see more what we need to see, feel more what we need to feel with this other identity. Because it isn't just we have lots of identities we can inhabit. So it could be thought of as a perspective or as a role or something like that as well. Yeah, I think so. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, James. So this is time for break, but keep the conversation going. Come up and ask any of us questions. But remember, during this break time, check in. It's nice to introduce yourself. But notice story and identity and roles, right? Because it's going to happen. And so what did we say? 20 minutes. So that's a longer break. Make a cup of tea. But see if you can make yourself interact. So don't feel weird if someone comes up to you. Because it's, <laughs> we see these in relationship. Okay? 20 minutes. See you back. We'll ring the bell to let you know. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit now about skillful use of identity. Um, and, and they are an interesting and uh, I think a little bit perplexing combination of words which, um, which we'll explore together. Um, and I wanted to begin first by bringing into the space the uh, you know, differences between individual identity and group identities. Like that seems really important to, to talk about. And I've been really inspired by um, Ruth King. Maybe some of you know her, her work, Mindfulness of Race, and 
and other things. And um, she just had a really pithy um, way of dividing this, uh, this down, sort of this difference between group identities, individual identities. And um, yeah, and just, just understanding that we belong to group identities, whether we recognize that or not. And they're always operating. So um, these are Ruth's words. So she's, she talks about this skillfully in terms of race, um, saying it's important to understand and manage identity dynamics from two perspectives. One, direct ex- one, our direct experience as individuals within our racial group identity. And number two, the projections that other individuals and races place on us and our racial group identity. Um, and I think we can expand uh, all different kinds of identities. So our direct experience as individuals within our racial group identity, our religious group identity, political party, socioeconomic group, gender group, sexual identity group, and the projections that other individuals, racial groups, religious groups, political parties, socioeconomic groups, gender groups, etc., place on us and our group identity. So... Um, yeah, and with these group identities, there are subordinate and dominant groups, right? So there's always power at play. Um, and I think that that's where their crucial meaning, that we understand them, that we recognize them, really comes into play. And I, I'll just give an example. I know this is supposed to be about skillful, but I've been so aware of how I have been unskillful in terms of ignorance about group identities. I'm just going to give an example um, as an illustration. Just uh, when I was in college, I was uh, a dishwasher uh, in the cafeteria, and there was a pot washer back there, a young man from the Dominican Republic who was my age. And, you know, we really got to know each other. Uh, His English wasn't that good, so we started to meet, and I was teaching him English. And and we we formed a relationship, you know, even though his English was like barely there, but we, you know, we hung out together. Um, but I, I didn't see all the uh, complication of like who we each were showing up in this relationship. He was undocumented, right? I'm an American citizen. He was a person of color. I was white. I had education and resources, and he didn't. Um, so there was this whole power. Uh, uh, dynamics that I didn't recognize. I just saw, I'm an individual, I'm this, he's an individual, he's that, how beautiful, right? But then, over time, these layers of group identity became huge uh, in how complicated uh, our relationship was and where it went from there. And so I have feelings left over from that about how I just was so myopic about this level of identity. I just didn't recognize um, just uh, the, the potential for harm and vulnerability, um, particularly from his side, um, and the needs and the, the sort of uh, agendas he might have had even coming into the relationship, you know, that these things just hadn't entered my mind. So, so recognizing um, when there is power um, so I, I, I feel now uh, I'm just much more awake to that. For instance, when my African-American colleague who 
invites me into uh, her rehearsal, her African-based uh, movement ensemble, to you know give criticism, to give feedback to the group, right? So I, I come into the room. I, I really need to be aware of my identity as the one white person in the room, right? And a, a person who is the group identity of, I'm faculty, right? And there's power with that position. Um, and so there's not only my awareness of my identities, but how I'm projecting, you know, my, you know, my perceptions of who's in the room, and how they're how they're also reading me. So there's there's all these things that I feel much more attuned to when I'm with when I'm with my male colleagues at a table, and I notice, you know, I'm not getting a word in. I'll make a point just to exercise that muscle, even though I don't have anything to say. I'm going to say something, just kind of like, just to, you know, exercise that muscle and be aware, be aware of what are often unconscious dynamics and power. Um, and I, and I'll I'll say too, and I'll talk about more about this later. Um, yeah, I, I I feel I feel uh, a little bit resonant with what. Uh, Jake, is it? James. James, yeah, a little bit resonant. I had the same, same sort of feeling, like, you know, what, what is, what do you mean, use of identities? A sort of same sort of complexity. But I, I notice a real relux, reluctance. Like I see identity a lot. I see it arise a lot, a kind of congealing a lot. But under almost no circumstances do I feel inclined to fuel it. Do I feel inclined to say? I'm a dancer, I'm a choreographer, I'm good at this, or I'm bad at this. Like I see this happen in the mind and I can see the impulse to sort of hoist myself up in a certain way sometimes. Like if my students, if I'm feeling like I'm giving a lecture and I just feel I'm, it's cratered, <laughs> it's like whatever, and I, and, and I kind of feel like, uh, there, yeah, there's just not good feedback. There might be a reach for an identity. Well, at least I'm, I'm good at the Dhamma, <laughs> you know, or at least, like, there might be a reach to sort of assert a different identity as a way of comfort, but it, it's sort of, um, I recognize that too, and it never feels like a useful strategy. I kind of don't trust this part that sort of wants to uh, hold myself up in a, in a particular way. So, so for me, the practice is really, I think the word recognition is really recognizing what, what identity needs to be seen uh, under these circumstances. Um, what came to mind for me in reflecting on skillful use of identity in my life, um, I'll name three identities that have been supportive. Um, one is identifying as a Buddhist, as someone who appreciates the Buddhist teachings, kind of sees that framework as um, a useful framework um, to look at everything, sort of the bottom line. And uh, even that identity, I think, I have been attached to and, and at times still am, but to stay focused on the skillful use, particularly uh, when I first started practicing, when I first came across the teachings, it was very useful. So I think that's 
how I think about identity is, is pragmatically, how is it useful, how is it supportive in a given moment, in a given situation, as an alternative to other identities. So I started practicing when I was 16, struggling with mental health, feeling not a lot of, yeah, just not a lot of hope or meaning, just deep thinker and nothing that anyone was saying really felt like I could trust completely. And then I came across these teachings that were so direct about suffering, the end of suffering, really fit my logical mind as well. This makes a lot of sense intellectually. And there's a path of practice. There's something you can do. Then I discovered Common Ground, and there's a community you can do it with. It was very supportive as an identity. This is something that makes a lot of sense, where I can put my heart into, I feel like, a lot of identity, and maybe all of it is about community, and it's about belonging, and who we feel a sense of kinship with. And I felt that at Common Ground, just the goodness of the intention. So I was all on board right away, and uh, I've been, been here since. And of course, I think over time, identities always change, and the attachments to that identity, I've seen that more clearly in how that, um, that I can really appreciate the teachings, the community, and I can see how my mind may be attaching fixed views. I know, kind of like what Mark was saying, I know what, I know. <laughs> I know something. And you don't. Or... So that was, that's one identity that's been very important. Um, another, even before Buddhism, probably the first skillful identity in my life was around music, being a musician. Just once I started playing guitar and writing songs, it was like allowed for yeah, another world that I felt more comfortable in. Uh, of expression and um, joy, kind of somewhat uh, not as bound by the physical world, but this kind of ephemeral world that has its own uh, its own logic, its own rules, and and that was very uh, supportive, sort of as a counter to the rest of my life where I didn't feel much sense of belonging or like things made much sense, but there was this place I felt competent and um, like there was a lot to discover there. So that's an identity that has um, been important to me and still is. Um, I, yeah, sometimes I, I, I still use that and, and feel that as a source of identity and uh, sort of a refuge from confusion. Because it, it is ephemeral, and it is the artistic sense or the sense of beauty or intuition. Uh, it is, feels different than a lot of other identities that I, I feel less confident in. And then the last one that 
I think is an interesting one. I was sort of talking with someone earlier during the break about this, and I think, again, like so many identities, it's how we relate to it with attachment or to illuminate something, to correct, or to replace another identity that isn't as skillful. But the identity, and this is very related to the identity as a Buddhist, but the identity as someone doing their best, someone with good intentions, a suffering human being who really cares about the suffering in my heart and the suffering in the world. And uh, the distinction between that and being perfect, I think, is actually really relevant. Like, Because I can also have that inclination to want to be perfect, but suffering that keeps uh, bringing up suffering because I keep making mistakes and causing harm. But still, that desire to not add suffering to the world, I think is a really useful identity for me um, because it keeps me interested in the complexity, in how I do cause suffering inadvertently, um, how I'm part of systems of suffering collectively. But I can say with some certainty, I can use that identity, I care. I care about the world. I care about myself. And that gives me, um, yeah, it's a useful identity. Because if I'm identified with, oh, nothing matters, or I'm bad, you know, fundamentally broken, well, then it's easier to, to cause suffering, actually, it seems. But like I'm someone doing my best to not cause suffering. Yeah. And again, I think that it's interesting, because there can be too much attachment to that. And then if it's attachment to being perfect, then kind of like what Mark was saying, then we're, we're not willing to see our imperfections and how we cause suffering. But if we're committed to not causing suffering as best we can, then we're, we should be, I think, actually more interested in how we cause suffering because we're interested in, in uh, not causing suffering. I'll leave it there. Go this way. One of the things that feels good to remind myself is just um, how natural it is, how normal it is to uh, want to find some ground in our lives. It's difficult being a human being in so many ways, in the ways that we have to survive and work and interact with each other and mess up and recover and take care of each other and on and on, it's just complicated, right? And then to be a practitioner on this path of trying to understand these deeper teachings of impermanence and identity, not self, it feels uh, counterintuitive. And so to remember that these ways that this heart wants to cling to experience, wants to uh, perceive something as permanent, to find some safety or comfort are really normal and occur naturally. And so there's no need to reject any part of who I am or what my experience leads me to do or say. Or I can just see that as uh, sometimes confused strategies to find some ground in this life. And identity is one of those ways. Like 
belonging to a group. It supports me in some way. Feeling like there's a sense of belonging there, a sense of um, commonality. So in my life, being a part of a queer community served that for me. And I can feel myself like, okay, it's, it's nice to belong. It feels, it feels there's some sort of grounding stability, even though it's not trustworthy. Right? It's not 100% trustworthy. It does offer some support in my life. And so not to neglect or deny that there's some truth there. Another role, another identity I have is that of being a godmother. I have four godkids, various ages, from three to 11. And being an integral part of their lives helps me feel my responsibility to feel into that sense of responsibility. Like, okay, this role of being an adult who is caring for and shaping, has some role in shaping little people and helping them navigate the complicated territory of human relationships feels really useful to me. I don't want to forget that. I don't want to forget that I am connected to other human beings and I have some responsibility to share and to listen and to learn. So that can be it's really useful to fully embrace this identity of person who's responsible to and person who's responsible for and the role of God mama <laughs> helps that pop out for me. And then that part of not being trustworthy is like just remembering that experience is always changing. Our perception is always changing. So there's no real those aspects of my life or my experience that I pick out in order to support this identity or that identity is limited because it's as a result of my own subjectivity. Right? So I'm going to pick out parts of uh, my experience in the world and go like, oh yeah, that's, I can relate to that or I can't relate to that. I'm going to ignore that. So it's always shifting, always changing. And in that way, I don't need to take it that seriously also. I can embrace it, but not have to completely rely on it either. And we're all doing that together, right? I can remember this. I shared this in a talk um, recently. But remember, um, there's this intergenerational gathering of queer people that I try to go to yearly. And it's something I look forward to, children, elders, lots of people in a particular home. Starts in the early evening so the little ones can come and goes into the <laughs> early morning hours so the young people can stay and socialize. And so feeling all in my queerness as I'm getting ready to go to this gathering and show up and walk in the door and from one part of the house to the other, I saw three people from Common Ground. And it was just like, oh yeah, I'm queer, I'm a teacher. I'm queer, I'm a teacher, right? So we're, and realizing that there's, uh, there's some relationship to other people's projections that I'm living into in all moments of my life also.
and to know that, okay, these are useful and I don't have to, um, and they're limited in ways that they're limited also. But I think the overall, the overall view, if there is one, is to hold it in love. Because, oh yeah, this, it's a difficult experience being a human being, and so we try on these ways to relate to each other and be in this experience and feel like, especially as practitioners, there's no ground and how hard that is. Okay, we need to have a sense of belonging and connection in order to be able to continue down this path. So we'll be opening it up to everybody in the room in just a moment. But just again, we're just reflecting, kind of modeling what you all will be doing in just a few moments of uh, yeah, just how we've seen the mind, the heart, u- skillfully use identity at different times. And just to together paint a picture that doesn't have to be a problem, that to be together we need identity, we need story, part of being human. And, uh, you know, thinking about one of the stories and identities I had from uh, teenage on was, was sort of having a sense from a pretty young age that um, culture, my parents, society, even to a large degree my friends, were untrustworthy. Like, they couldn't actually deliver safety and Whatever I wanted, they weren't delivering, right? And so I uh, started to develop and use an identity of, I guess I have to rely on myself. I guess I have to find my own way. You know, that sort of rubble, it's not that uncommon in teen years anyway. Um, Striking off on my own and... uh, and it, it was good in some ways, I mean, not in all ways, of course. But in terms of that basic, developing that basic sense of uh, self-responsibility for, yeah, just like I'm responsible for my own sense of well-being. There's shadows to it, as I talked about earlier, you know, um, I'll do it by leaving all those relationships behind. <laughs> you know, I'll be that sort of quintessential loner and uh, the island all by myself. And the rest of the world can sink, but I won't. I'll find the way. You know, that sort of shadow was definitely there. But also a very, I mean, I still feel like wholesome responsibility for my own heart and just... Uh, Nobody can do it for me, so what can I do? How can I take care of myself? Um, so that was one identity that continues to operate. And now the next one that I wanted to bring up is sort of in contrast to that, which I thought was interesting, um, about, uh, I don't know, 15 years into being sort of hardcore spiritual type as an adult. So in my early... Uh, 30s, I guess it was, um, just realizing that I had like that sort of being independent wasn't working, (laughs) and I had some other things that were calling, like being in relationship, 
And I tried out some communities, but I hadn't really dated all through my 20s. And, uh, and it wasn't working. <laughs> and just so when and I connected, um, I guess it was like 1991, early 1991. And it was... Uh, just exploring the identity of commitment because it was so different than what had gotten me through my 20s. That, oh yeah, so this is like making a commitment that I'm going to show up, that I'm in this. And we went right from, because we knew each other, but we hadn't been romantically involved, intimately involved, but we knew each other pretty well as uh, spiritual friends because um, we had lived in a spiritual community for a few years together. And so we went right from not at all being involved as a couple to living together in a committed relationship with very little time between the two. And, uh, and it was just really interesting that like, learning to inhabit that identity of, okay, now every story I tell has to include this other person. Because I don't have a story that feels good that gets me out of this relationship, right? Because it would mean like a betrayal. Like I said I was in, so I'm going to be in. I'm going to start telling stories that I'm in. And it was really interesting. um, After living together for a year and a half, in 93, we got married. And just talking about, well, what kind of vows can we actually say to each other, given, you know, we were deep practitioners into the practice, into the reality of uncertainty as the sort of the fundamental truth of our experience. And yet, until we die, do or die, or whatever they say with the traditional wedding vows, you know, just didn't make sense in this world of insecurity and uncertainty. How do you say something that just doesn't line up? And then just pragmatically whatever the statistic is, but, you know, a lot of relationships don't continue. So what we think we're special or somehow not bound by what's driving everybody else's relationships. So just that, just learning to kind of play with the identity of commitment. And the other place this identity of commitment showed up was helping my parents as they got older and in the dying process. And just like, I really explored, like, what does it mean to, like, I never wanted to come back to Minneapolis. I grew up in Minneapolis. It was like, I never thought of coming back. But it it made sense when Wynn and I connected in New York City. It made sense to come back here because she had some dance connections. And uh, and it turned out to be great because I got to work through this whole identity of not being connected with my family. It wasn't like a bad break or anything, but I was just like, I knew that, like, oh yeah, my family was not cool. I mean, it's not true, but that's the sort of teen, early 20s, you know, framework that I had to, like, learning, like, oh no, I can be committed. I mean, in my own way, not in a perfect way, for sure, to be there for my parents, to show up, to help them in their aging and dying process. And I tell you, that commitment and that identity continues to reverberate both. The one with when, imperfect for sure, but it has a good taste, leads a good taste in my heart. And same with my identity as a son of my parents, 
like, yeah, I did my best. That's the flavor of that now that they both have passed. Yeah, maybe I'll leave it there. And I was thinking, the two of you, that maybe just so everyone gets to speak, we do like you did, dyads, and then open it up for a large group until we have to break for lunch. So maybe just turn to somebody around you. And I remember we're talking about how have you seen the skillful use of identity in your life? could be long ago, could be present. Take two or three minutes each person. You really have the time. Really hold the space. So you might, because we're going to be a lot of us in a room, you might want to sit relatively close so you don't have to raise your voice, say your name, say your pronouns. And then, um, yeah, just speak for two or more minutes. I'll ring the bell and then switch. Then we'll come back and Gabe will kind of facilitate a large group conversation. So why don't you do that now? So uh, welcome back. We will now have about 20 minutes to share out, um, continuing this theme of the skillful use of identity, how identities have been useful in our lives. Um, So anyone who wants to share something that was really insightful from your uh, discussion and you want to share from... From your perspective, probably best not to share something the other person said unless you got their permission. Um, And also, if there's any questions that are on your mind that you want to ask of the group, or um, we might respond as well. Um, So just continuing this theme around identity. Yes. Hello, everybody. one of the identities I mentioned was being a proud Minnesotan. And especially when, like, Paul Wellstone was elected, it was like, oh, this is so great. And, um, and now I'm, a dinner, I'm beginning to shift to be, see myself as a white settler on Dakota land and um, learning how to be, like, looking at more of the 10,000-year history of successful inhabitation here and um, you know, trying to become a student of what it takes to live in a good way in this place. Uh, so our congregation, um, Holy Trinity Lutheran right over here, had um, uh, a really wonderful guest speaker last weekend on the Doctrine of Discovery. And um, so I, I just am really curious how we can unpack the history of the state and and, and um, work with the Dakota Anishinaabe people um, as, you know, helping them to re-envision our future together. Um, I'm Becca, and I wanted to talk about... Um, uh, the identity that I had growing up um, was as a musician, and um, it was the one place in my family system that I could thrive. Um, it was also really great for an introvert to be able to practice violin for six hours a day, and it was like 
beautiful for everybody else and totally a place of refuge for me. Um, that grew into having a very successful music career. Um, and then um, something that was a lot deeper inside of me, which was uh, wanting connection with other people, um, kind of grew as I got into my 30s. And um, I started to realize that the people I uh, w connected with in music, um, music is this very like universal language. So while you're playing music with people, you feel like they're, uh, you're on a fair playing field. Um, you understand everyone's role. It makes sense. It fits together both like emotionally and mathematically. And um, when you step outside of the role or um, your identity as a musician and you hang out with the people you're playing music with, sometimes you find out that there's absolutely no other common ground. <laughs> and so it's a really paradoxical lifestyle. Um, but I wanted to um, connect uh, with people from a, a deeper place of love and nurturing and family orientation. And uh, the transition into doing that led me to leaving music. Um, and that was shocking as a part of my personal evolution. Um, so I just think that as identity shifts, um, where we're allowed to express our identity changes as we see that as adults we have the uh, ability to open the door to um, like the deepest parts of our love for ourselves, which then may completely change your path in life. Uh, it doesn't necessarily exist as a child, but um, when we mature emotionally enough to... Um, to see how we're playing our roles out with other people, um, we have the freedom to choose. That's it. Thanks. This is going to be kind of automotive, sorry. Uh, I have these lights on my Prius that when you hit rough ground or you temporarily hit ice or whatever, they come on and warn you that, in fact, you got to be careful. And <laughs> it's been kind of a... It, it, it's, an, it's been an ongoing sort of picture in my mind for my life where those lights have come on pretty frequently... Uh, warning me of uneven ground or a shift in identity. And it does take some guts. That's my word. It does take some guts on my part to then shift into another identity and find stability and have the lights go off again for a while. My name is John. Um, so I didn't realize this was a skillful use of identity, but uh, I think it was on reflection. So, um, so I don't think I'm unusual in having a fairly dysfunctional family. <laughs> and, but everything was painted very rosily. And I, um, 
and I just couldn't figure things out because there was the reality and then there was the language. And then I started, I, a friend took me to a, uh, to a folk music cafe. It was called the No Exit Cafe and Gallery. And they had folk music on the weekends. And these folks were thinking about, thinking about things like, you know, people being unjustly imprisoned and hanged and uh, prostitution uh, and, the, and the abuse of women and so on. And all of a sudden, I th- there were people talking about what I saw. And I said, I want to be part of that group. <laughs> so kind of like Gabe, but maybe for a slightly different reason, I uh, became a folk musician and even though I went into got, went eventually to get a, an advanced degree and be a professor, I always maintained that identity as a as a as a musician, as someone who's dedicated to uh, reflecting, you know, what I see out there, and that's been so helpful to me. Uh, it's provided me a ground, but obviously not uh, one that uh, always delivers. So that's it. Thank you. Let's go here, and then we'll go over there. Hi, my name is Jesse, and I think one category of identities are the ones that we take up ourselves, but the other side of that are the ones that are put upon us. And that can be through experience, that can be through how people treat us, it can be through surviving something. And... As a person who has survived early life trauma, I carried that around, that that identity, very potently for a large part of my life. And it, it was something that was very limiting. And eventually I realized that, as I've grown and healed in different ways, that that identity can be a way of relating to other people. And where in some situations you might not be in the right position to offer even a listening ear because somebody might not feel like you can hear them without judging them or not being in a position to actually give any sort of advice. But if you can turn your own experience into an identity that you can relate to other people with, that puts you in a unique position to be able to listen, to be able to understand, and to be able to convey what you've learned. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, I'm hearing in a few of the sharings that a common thread of identity is something that brings us together, that we find common ground. It's a way of connecting, belonging. That's one skillful use, how we connect to each other. How else? Do we connect to each other other than finding something where we're, we're, oh, you're like me in one way or the other? Yeah. And then we're going to go, I think, over here, the man in gray. Um, I'm John, uh, ex-academic, I guess you could say. Um, I perked up as Mark was talking about commitment um, because I have long thought and found that commitment, all-out commitment, has been often the key to the most satisfying experiences in my life, Um, whether as an academic pursuing an idea or as a rock climber trying to get up there or 
more recently as an endurance, ultra-endurance cyclist uh, on 100-mile-plus gravel rides and races. I've, I've just really enjoyed the experience of being way, way up there and way, way out there where quitting is not easy or even possible. And yet, um, I've also learned that one needs to be flexible and kind of non-dogmatic about such things because um, you can ruin your reputation or get yourself badly killed by not quitting, by not backing out, by not realizing that you're on the wrong path. Um, and uh, quitting requires some humility, I think, some flexibility, some judgment. Um, so in all of this, it seems to me that there's something about skillfulness that involves um, tolerance for ambiguity and contradiction and anomalies such that you can shift what you're doing or stop or realize that it's wrong or uh, that there's a better way. Um, yeah, something like that. And I kind of pick up on other people saying much the same thing in different words. So, yeah. So I've been thinking about how we, I've acquired identities throughout my life and outgrown some and then acquired new ones and then I mean, my whole life is about acquiring identity and then moving on to the next identity and the next one. And um, so in this last exercise, when um, I paired up with someone, I wanted to start the knowing of one another without the story. And I asked her if she'd be willing to just mindfully gaze at one another, if she'd be okay with me just gazing at her face uh, in silence. And she was okay with that, and we sat silently for the duration of this exercise, just gazing as I was mindfully observing uh, what was coming up for me. And it's so interesting to me that I don't need to know her identity to respond to her presence. That just looking into her face turned on these lovely feelings of friendly interest. And uh, certainly I was aware of the perception of her appearance and her facial expression, and I was responding to that, but it was... Um, free of the story, and I just, uh, I encourage people to try that sometime, <laughs> because it's a lovely experience to notice how we respond to people when we really see them, without even knowing the stories. Other skillful uses of identity in your life? Hi, I'm Kathy. 
Um, well, a very recent shift for me has occurred as a result of um, really what a lot of people have been doing here at Common Ground in the last several years about waking up to our whiteness. And um, for, for me, um, it's been life-changing um, having lived more than 65 years not knowing I had a race and then learning to um, see that that wasn't true and um, just developing such, uh, with, with the help of this community, really developing um, a deepening awareness of that. And with that um, came and has come a whole transition in my life in terms of uh, every day, practically, um, what I get up with in the morning and you know, the work that I see I need to do with my still good energy, even though I'm getting up there. Uh, but I have good energy, and I... Um, so so for me, that's been a very purposeful development of, a, of that identity that I'm so grateful for. And, um, yeah, I just... I mean, there's definitely ways that I could use that unskillfully, but it feels like a pretty good path. Um, so, yeah. Thanks. I'm Jean, and um, and I'm still trying to figure out the identity um, part, but um, one thing that I talked about in the last um, dyad was um, my my father, who I had a, I mean, a, an okay relationship with, but there's some kind of issues there, which were very important to me. Well, now he is very disabled and aging, and and I feel like when I'm, I go and see him, and I do that out of a sense of duty, and when I'm relating to him, I feel like I'm in the identity of a good daughter. Um, and that feels good to me to do that, but I'm still kind of questioning whether is that wholesome? Because there, there all is all this underlying thing that's never really going to get solved. Because you know he's not going to be around that much longer, um, and so it, it feels good to relate to him in that way of being dutiful and positive and all. But I still, I'm not sure if that's skillful or not, or if you can trust your own feeling about whether it's it's good. Yeah, and it's probably complex. There's, in any moment, there's multiple identities at play, and some of them might be more, we might be more aware of them, and some of them may be less aware or less clear. So I think just to acknowledge that it's complicated, and it, yeah, it, it might not always be clear. Yeah, but we can identify certain strands that we could say, well, I don't know. Like in my example around knowing I, I'm doing my best, like a lot of complexity, but I can find some strands of an identity that seems supportive and then use that to give me a little bit of ground and then other identities maybe are less supportive, less clear. Anyways, that was my thoughts on that. Thanks for sharing.
Yeah. It felt really kind of strange and uncomfortable to kind of give a good application of yourself initially for me. Kind of, it kind of felt like you were patting yourself on the back, so I kind of gave like a half-baked response about something I did at work that was nice. Um, but then uh, I was kind of able to tie the same concept to a loved one of mine that gave something or that, you know, was more positive and personal. And talking about a loved one and their application of it kind of made me feel more open to talking about that, about myself and applying that same sort of positivity and personal level about myself too. Mm. Hi, uh, Robert. Um, the only person I heard identify themselves as an, from the East Coast was Wynn. And um, it's pretty significant. I've been living in Minnesota for 33 years now and uh, going back and forth to New York where I was raised, born and raised. And um, when I moved here in the late 80s, I was... I'm an avid listener to public radio, and there were several programs with other people identifying coming from elsewhere, usually the East Coast, to Minnesota and having a hard time making friendships. And um, uh, so I assumed for myself that problem. In other words, I said, that's what it is. Everybody else from the East Coast agrees. You can't make friends in Minnesota because they're all clannish and one thing after another. Well, I could hold on to that for a long time or not. Or not. I've tried to let it go a lot. I do have uh, more sincere relationships with people from the East Coast, I think, um, that are here in the Twin Cities. Um, because we just, I don't know, I, I'm not sure I understand it all, but um, we're more open. I think the diversity I experienced on the East Coast is so very different than uh, how I am experiencing diversity here. That's one thing. The other thing is, um, I was sitting down here, I was talking about music, and I got up this morning singing this song. Splish, splash, I was taking a bath <laughs> all about a Saturday night. Rub, dub, just relaxing in the tub thinking everything was all right, and then it goes on and on. I stepped out the top, put a robe on. How was I to know there was a party going on? And I love when I do that because it's, I mean, I remember all the words because they meant so much to me at the time. Uh, and I do that with a lot of songs, actually, quite a few. So music is huge. Music is a big, big thing. Thanks, everyone, for sharing. We are at time, so um, it's time for lunch, and we will continue the conversation uh, just in your own way. Um, so it would be good to find a group of people to sit with, to have lunch with, and just be mindful of inviting people in so that everyone has a small group of maybe four or five people to sit with. Um, but it will be unstructured and just you know, connect with each other uh, in whatever way feels natural. And at the same time, you can just be continuing um, this reflection on identity 
skillful use of identity. You know, you might find in the conversations how we connect, like we were talking about, finding some commonalities, just observing how we, we go about connecting with each other. Enjoy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.